Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. I want to talk today about the early church's all-in model, and we're continuing our series in the church, and kind of going to address the growing elephant in the room in the Western church today. Orthodox church officials in Russia discovered in 2008 that one of their church buildings had disappeared. Gone. The 200-year-old building northeast of Moscow had gone unused for a decade, but the Orthodox church, which was experiencing some growth, was considering reopening the church building. Hadn't been used in about a decade. They're going to reopen it, so they go and visit the church building, and that's when they discovered that the church building wasn't there. And there had never been a permit taken out for deconstructing it or anything like that. So they had to get to the bottom of this. After investigating the matter, church officials did not blame aliens from outer space for the missing structure. Rather, they said the perpetrators were villages from a nearby town whom they said had taken and sold bricks from the building to a local businessman. For each brick, the thieves received about one ruble or about four cents. This two-story church facility did not go from being a building to not being a building in one bulldozing stroke. Rather, the bricks were apparently chiseled out one by one by lots of people. And in the same way, some churches built not of bricks but of living stones, that is, Christians, are not reduced in one fatal stroke, but rather by Christians one by one, choosing not to be involved or connected. Stay home and watch a TV preacher which some of you are doing right now, hello. (laughs) We'll talk about that. Read the Bible and pray, but don't mess with the organized church. Do your own spiritual thing. Each decision means one less living stone. And in the end, the church, intended by God to be the display of Christ's glory, is chiseled away. Conversely, each person who gets involved helps to build a holy temple in the Lord made up of living bricks where Christ is glorified. Over the last few decades, I would say really during my lifetime, the church in North America has experienced a massive, massive shift away from historic commitment and engagement levels. Every form of commitment to the local church is in a bear market for about the last 30 to 40 years. If you are a millennial and younger, you may not even have memories of the church of yesterday because it really happened, it started before your lifetime and then continued during your lifetime. And that's actually a problem because if you're younger here, so much of modern Christianity for you has no muscle memory. It's like you don't know what it used to be like. You don't know what your parents and grandparents necessarily did. You've never experienced what some of us old fogies might call, and I include myself in that category for this sermon only, what we might call the ideal or the clear norm that resembles a very positive past of commitment and engagement with the local church. So let me describe that history for you. On Sundays... When I was a kid, we went to church for three different events on Sunday. 
We went to church before the morning service for Sunday school, and then we stayed for the morning service, and kids might be dismissed during that for children's church, and then we came back on Sunday nights for an evening service. I grew up on a lake. I loved fishing. I didn't fish on Sunday nights. We were there three times every Sunday, and we went 48 to 49 weeks a year, okay? Did you hear me? 48 to four, how many weekends are there a year? 52, sometimes there's a 53rd. We were there 48 or 49 Sundays every year. Vacations were the exceptions and where the brush hoppers went on vacation was Christian camp where guess what? We went to church every day and rode horses a little bit too because I think I had a crush on the horse lady. Another issue, another issue. We went to church on Wednesday nights. It was prayer meeting. Now, there were less people there, but I still remember we'd have like a, a Bible study. The pastor, pastors back then would do like three sermons a week. I do not know how they did it. And when I came into ministry, I was doing that to some degree. And I don't know that you do any of it really well in that situation. But pastors would give like a little sermon on Wednesday nights. And then we would break up into prayer. And I remember as a young boy going into the pastor's office with the pastor and the deacons and the men of the church and being in there in a set of chairs praying for the church. And I was doing this as a young boy with the men of the church. We went to Awana, I think, on Tuesday nights. Then we went to Christian College. And that was back when Christian colleges were actually pro-Christian. They weren't on the Jesus Apology Tour. Peter, there's a beeping going on up here. I don't know if you can hear it, but I can hear it if anyone else hears it. We did our recreation Fridays and Saturdays. That's when we recreated. On Friday and Saturday, we did sports. On Friday and Saturday, we rode woolly mammoths. On Friday and Saturday, we went in the mountains, got to the cliffs, and gathered pterodactyl eggs. On Friday and Saturdays, we hunted juvenile T-Rexes. That's when we did that. We didn't do that on Sunday. There were no traveling teams. There were no weekend sports. They carried over into Sundays. In fact, the culture respected Sunday, and most businesses weren't open because of that. On Sundays, we were in the second row with Fred and Wilma Flintstone, 48 to 49 weekends of the year. Over time, those landmark Christian education and worship platforms eroded. Sunday nights ceased. Prayer meetings ceased. It doesn't mean prayer ceased, but the gathering together in community for prayer ceased. Many churches, including this one, canceled Awana programs for young children. Too hard to get volunteers. And faithful church attendance eroded from most Sundays, and by that I mean any time your dad wasn't on vacation or your mom wasn't a, or should, yeah, had a vacation week, faithful church attendance eroded from that, which was typically every week but three or four, to about two times per month, and recently surveyed Christianity Today, which I believe is out of Wheaton, Illinois, I'm not positive, recently concluded that faithful church attendance, at least in America, and I'm guessing we're no different, is one and a half times per month. That's considered normative faithful worship attendance. 
Now what's interesting about that, and incredibly sad, is this accompanied a massive shift away from faith in God generally. All right, so the latest survey, 2021, from this is Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center. I'll talk about some Canadian stuff in a little bit, but I suspect North America is going to mimic North and South, you know, Canada, the U.S., going to be somewhat similar in these generational patterns. They found that belief in God has declined between generations. We all knew that, but I'm going to throw the statistics at you. 83% of those in the silent generation, born 1927 to 1945, some of you are here, professed belief in God, 83% of you. 79% of baby boomers, 1946 to 1964, believe in God, 79%. I'm a late boomer. 70% of Generation Xers, 1965 to 1983, identify as Christian. The group of people who were raised during this massive shift away from connection to church, millennials, 43% of millennials between 1984 and 2002 said this, 43% said, so it means 57% identify as Christians, but 43% say they don't know, care, or believe that God exists. Now, when you look at historical trends, that's actually a massive decline in just a few generations. The report underscores the declining importance of religious faith, as highlighted in pandemic reopenings when politicians prioritized restaurants and tattoo parlors over houses of worship. Because those are, of course, essential, but worshiping God is not in any way essential and is just risky behavior. Now, is that a coincidence that we have one of the greatest declines in even belief in God during a time where we as parents continue to cancel all the things that we grew up with? I don't think that's a coincidence. I think we've created our own reality. Add COVID to the decline, and where does it end? Because now what we've concluded is we really don't need to be connected to a local church. I can watch a TV preacher. In fact, I can watch my own TV preacher. Or since there are people who are better than Pastor Paul, I can find the best in the world and listen to them, and I don't have to go to church. And we created what was called pajama church. Now, I don't know what the perfectly designed level of church involvement and commitment is, but I think the early church probably would be a good place to start. Because in every generation, we have to decide, what do we do with this book, and how much are we going to let it, our lives, be a reflection of it and the practices of early Christians? It's the only thing we really have to go by. So I want you to turn to the book of Acts. This is not just the early church. This is like the early church in the first weeks of its development. Acts chapter 2 is the first time you have a descriptive statement about how the early church operated. Acts chapter 2 is in your New Testament, about three-quarters of the way through the Bible near you. It starts with page 1 again, and it's on page 93. Page 93 of your New Testament, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 42. Now, this is right after Peter's first sermon where 3,000 people got saved. And then it describes how they acted together. In fact, I'll start in verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, this is a conclusionary paragraph now. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just two points, and we're going to spend most of our time on the second one. The early church experienced the explosive growth that Jesus predicted. So I just want to give you the context of the book of Acts, just so we're kind of understanding what's going on here and why this is here. Acts traces, now this is a second book by Luke. Luke does a two-volume set called Luke-Acts. And the first volume is to talk about all that Jesus was and did. Begins with the birth narratives. Our best birth narratives are actually in the book of Luke. And then he talks about Jesus' life. Uh, Every gospel writer has some uniquenesses about their writings. Luke has many of them. He includes certain stories like the prodigal son and other things. He had really had a heart for people and includes those stories about Jesus. And all the way to the resurrection. And then Acts is his explanation of how the church came to exist. Because again, remember... uh, the Old Testament is Jewish. Uh, Luke is, is writing from a Jewish perspective, and now you've got a Gentile church, and so you need to have the book of Acts or you'd never understand the epistles because if Christianity is coming out of Judaism, all of a sudden there's a, there's a letter to Rome and it's talking to Gentiles. There's a letter to the church at Corinth and it's talking to Gentiles. You wouldn't have an understanding of how Christianity went from Judaism to the Gentile world unless you have the book of Acts. So that's why it's here. It's the history of the early church so we understand these massive transitions. So Acts explains that. Jesus had predicted this great geographical and racial expansion of the gospel in Acts 1.8. So right before Jesus goes into heaven, he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in, okay, watch the geographical expansion, which includes a racial expansion. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. Actually, if you look at the book of Acts from a scholarship standpoint, you will see that that's exactly what Acts does. It actually traces the gospel in that way. It begins in Jerusalem with the passage we read earlier with Jewish people. It ends in Rome where Paul is witnessing to Roman authorities with Gentile authorities. God's power guides it all. One of the themes of the book of Acts is how the Holy Spirit accompanies this movement of the gospel from Jews to these other people groups as it becomes a worldwide religion. And God's Spirit is present in all of it, performing miracles and doing all kinds of things to give it credibility. And during this expansion, you'll see as it goes from one people group to another, Luke will give these summary statements, like he does in Acts chapter 2, which we read. And this one was about how the church operated. And in it, in the book of Acts, we have some commands to obey and some examples to follow. Now, the reality is, if you go to the epistles, they're, very, um, they have a, they're full of imperatives. Like Paul will say, do this, don't do this. Those are imperatives. Acts is a little bit more history to emulate. Fewer commands, but more history to emulate. It doesn't mean it doesn't have the power of imperative, but we're, we're observing what the early church did and what obviously made it successful. So Peter has just preached a sermon on Pentecost, 
And the church begins after that first sermon with 3,000 new believers in one day. Of course, much of Peter's sermon was about Jesus, who they crucified, and he Peter twisted the knife. I mean, it was a pretty harsh sermon because he's talking to some of the same crowds who were there and, you know, accuses them of crucifying Jesus, talks about the resurrection, and they repent, and there's 3,000 people, and now you've got this explosive growth right where Jesus was resurrected in that city at a holiday, at Pentecost. So it's one of the big weeks where Jews would come to Jerusalem. So a lot of pilgrims are there. And then... All of this happens. We observe how the early church functioned together, and that's our second point, which we'll park in for a while. The early Christians participated in an all-in level of commitment and involvement. I want you to notice the words that are in this chapter two text. They did this continually, one of the words. They devoted themselves. There's a word means steadfast and single-minded fidelity to a course of action. They were all about their faith. They were devoted to what? To four things, the apostles' teaching. Now again, this is a group of people, these are Jews, they had the Old Testament, but they're not getting the teaching on the Old Testament. They might be getting teaching about how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, but the apostles' teachings would have been the life of Christ and some of Jesus' teachings and this new resurrection which they had not foreseen and and where we go from here because they don't have a New Testament. So where do we go from here? The apostles' teaching was sort of the New Testament before it was written. To Fellowship. Now, it doesn't say, actually, if you look in the Greek language, it doesn't say fellowship. It says the fellowship. There's a definite article there, which is interesting because they're not just talking about coffee time after church. What they're talking about is their commitment to the fellowship, which has the idea of a recognized body. As soon as this body of people developed, they were all committed to each other in it. They were committed to the fellowship. If they didn't see those people, they were missing out on something because those people were the fellowship to breaking of bread. Now, I know some of you want to believe that's communion, and it might be, but just as many scholars would say, actually, that was this participation in meals together that they had in the early church and to prayer. Apostles' teaching, the fellowship breaking of bread, and to prayer. Well, he doesn't end there. Luke continues with more language. They were together. Together means physically together. They had all things in common. They sold property and possessions and shared with anyone who had need. Now, this was kind of a unique situation. I want to explain what's going on here because, you know, if I were a Marxist, I would take this passage and say, hey, this is what the church is supposed to be. The church is like a socialist body. And there's this command to rid yourself of possessions and give to everybody. There's also a unique historical situation going on here. I believe in generosity. I'll be preaching on that one in a few weeks. I'll have my car parked right there. And as soon as I'm done, I'll be walking out the door and you won't see me for a while. But what's going on? You think I'm kidding. What's going on is there's a unique situation going on in history here. The church is born on a national holiday which means Jews from many countries are coming and experiencing this explosive growth and the miracles that accompany it. So the temple is just full of pilgrims 
just like it was on Passover when Jesus uh, was crucified. You have extra people there from other places, other countries. And so what's going on is the church is born. There are miracles going on like crazy. That's in the Greek. Like crazy. And so people are like, we're not going home. This is, this is of God. We need to be here. We need to see what develops out of this. And so all these pilgrims want to stay in and around Jerusalem for this, this explosive, thousands upon thousands of new converts on a regular basis, growth, and so they want to stay there. And the Jews in Jerusalem are like, we have to facilitate this. And so they started selling assets in order to, to foster this, you know, the ability of all these pilgrims to stick around to see what God was doing. So that's the uniqueness of that specific situation. Luke isn't done. So you got all the local Jews selling stuff right and left. They're, they're selling their IBM stock. They're selling their oil company stock. They're selling stuff. They're selling pieces of land. And they're funding this massive expansion of the gospel in its infancy. But he isn't done. He says, he speaks about constancy. He says, day by day, they were together. Day by day. Not even Sunday by Sunday. This is day by day. These people are together talks about unity. They had one mind. talks about community. They would break bread from house to house. And then he says they were taking their meals together. I mean, it was like you joined this group, you were all in, and you were seeing these people all the time. It was a level of intensity and commitment and community that we do need to restore at some level. And note the results. The concluding remarks by Luke before he goes to the next subject in the book, they enjoyed favor with all the people. All the people. He's not talking about those who were converts. They enjoyed favor with the broader population. Everyone saw this fledgling movement. And they're like, wow. Wow, that's attractive. And as a result of that, they experienced daily growth in numbers. God added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. It was the birth of the church. It was a big deal. Now, I admit that these were not normal times and circumstances. Miracles were common. Uh, if I were up here performing miracles like the apostles were performing miracles, I think you'd be more excited about bringing your friend to church. Now, there are different views on what's going on here versus the early church. In fact, we have whole denominations that exist because of our differences in, in view about the book of Acts. If you're a Pentecostal or a Charismatic, you're more likely to say, everything that happened in Acts can happen to me, like today. And there are other people, and I myself would be included, which would say there are certain epics of miracles and powerful things that happen throughout history that don't necessarily mean they're normative for our lives every day, but I believe God can do anything he wants today that he's ever done. But I still would say there are epics of miracles that you do see throughout history in the Bible, and sometimes it doesn't work out that way. But the point still remains that there were practices established then which continued in the early church. 1 Corinthians 16.2 and Hebrews 10.25. Okay, here are a couple of verses that talk about this continued practice of gathering together. 1 Corinthians 16.2, what Paul is doing, he's not talking about going to church. He's talking about 
making sure that you, you know, he's talking to the Corinthians about raising an offering for, I believe, the church in Jerusalem. They were experiencing famine, I believe. So he says, on the first day of every week, which was when the early church celebrated Sunday because it was resurrection day, Jews celebrated a Sabbath, which is Friday night at 6 till Saturday night at 6. But once they became Christians, it was Sunday because it's resurrection day. So on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections need to be made when I come. What Paul is saying is, I'm going to take a big offering back to the church in Jerusalem. Thank you for your support. But get that ready before I come. I'm not going to do it when I'm there. But he's indicating that they were getting together on the first day of every week. That was the early church practice. Sunday was their day to be together. Now, later on in the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some suggest Paul. Some suggest, I think, Phoebe. Some other, other options are out there. But people were being persecuted for their faith. This is written a little bit later. And persecution is broken out, and so people stop going to church. And so here's Paul's response to that. Not abandoning our own meeting together. In other words, don't avoid being together on weekends no matter what as is the habit of some people. Some of you aren't coming to church because you're being persecuted, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The epistles describe church life as a community of diverse people with various gifts constantly connecting with one another, needing one another, contributing to the help of each other, and it was such a powerful movement that you had, to, you had to organize it. And so that's why you have, you have books of the Bible that are about what do we do? How do we get leaders? And what do they need to look like? And what are the qualifications they need to have as elders and deacons are raised up to teach and manage and serve this movement that, that was going to explode, which Jesus said the gates of Hades can't prevail against it. And this movement became so powerful that today there are over two billion people under the broadest view of Christianity, and it changed human history. It changed art and literature, it changed science, it changed architecture, it, it developed causes. Hospitals are named after you know, saints or religious institutions or denominations. Nonprofits developed as we raise the value of all people everywhere out of our Christian faith. Governments developed differently than otherwise they would have, which developed freedom and the value of life in some societies. And most important, the internal destiny of perhaps billions of people has been affected by this movement called the Church of Jesus Christ, which is the most important movement in the history of the planet. But now, church has kind of fallen on hard times. It's easy to pick on church because, you know, church has hurt all of us and there's hypocrites in the church, which I would agree, I'm the number one hypocrite. None of us live up to everything we believe. None of us. You have a person who thinks they live up to everything they believe, that's the biggest hypocrite. Man, don't come to this church, you're gonna wreck it. We're all deeply in need of everything that Jesus offered. But the church isn't very popular today. For many, connection to this great movement has become secondary, unimportant, or even something that they would look at pejoratively, like why would I ever be part of a church? But I'm talking more today about where we just take it less seriously, we're just less involved. 
Because that trend, which we have all participated in, there are no innocents here anywhere, has disaster written all over it. COVID didn't cause this, by the way. COVID just exposed it. COVID didn't cause any problems for the church. COVID just kind of, COVID just brought to light what was going on for the last 40 years in Christian cultures. People realized how easy it was to stay away from church. Well, they already were staying away from church two and a half weekends out of the month. And COVID just allowed us to take that one and a half or two weekends we were coming and watch a little TV. COVID just put commitment erosion on steroids. But now we're trying to figure out who do we need to be in a post-pandemic world. And don't send me a letter saying COVID still exists. I know that, I know that, I know that, all right? But we're not all dropping over dead right now, okay? Some of you are praying that for me, but those prayers are not going to be answered. I'm a tough old bird. So we have to decide, what are we going to be? As individuals, what do we want to be as a church? What are you going to be as a Christian? And don't look at the last 20 years as a good model. The last 20 years is a train wreck in Christianity. It's not the model to follow. Maybe, maybe this might be the model to follow, which we were getting away from in the first place. We have the Bible as our mirror. It doesn't change. I was talking to a friend of mine who's retired uh, we pastored together in, in Minnesota, uh, different churches. We pastored the two largest churches in that town, and we had a good relationship, and we worked hard to have a good relationship to minimize some of the sort of competitive feelings you can have when you're leading organizations right next to each other. But we had a good talk, and we'll talk a little bit about one of the things he shared with me, but he said pastors feel like they're just starting over. We're all sort of starting over with what is the church got to be. So let's talk about the future of us future of you as a, maybe an older person or a grandparent who may have access into your grandchildren's lives. Maybe you could bring them to some stuff at church or maybe you're a parent. What are you going to be as a parent? How much do you want your kids involved? How often are you going to be here? What should be normative? What standard do you want to create? Because it's just you and the Bible right now. So I'm going to Spend some time talking through this. I'm going to state it in the negative, but I'm going to try to be positive. Spiritual dangers of eroding the all-in model. First, erosion of literacy and ultimately maturity. What I mean by this is biblical literacy. Literacy is one of the primary concerns of Christian leaders everywhere. Do people really know and understand the Bible, theology, history of the Bible, progressive revelation throughout the Bible. Do they understand the story of the Bible? Why are children able to read and write and comprehend and reason? Well, I'll tell you why. We send them to school. Or if you homeschool, you homeschool. But they go to school for hours and hours and hours. You make them study stuff. I believe the public schools, about, what, 180 days required in most provinces? 
about 180 days of school every year. And they're there for six or seven hours daily, and we'd all agree it's not all concentrated teaching. You know, some of it might be study hall, some of it's gym class, some of it's picking on other kids, etc. It all happens. You know, it's not all concentrated study, but there are hours and hours of concentrated study. And that allows them to be prepared to eventually function in an adult world where there are expectations placed upon them that require education. We get that. We get that. That's why you and I can read and write and reason. So similarly, what will allow our children to spiritually navigate the world and follow Jesus? The same kind of thing that makes your kids be able to read and write. We send them to spiritual literacy venues, to biblical literacy venues, to Sunday school, to church, to Awana, to youth group. We, we send them to all of these venues so that they accumulate Bible knowledge which they process and ultimately, hopefully, stay with the faith and live it out. In my childhood, again, there were five of those educational venues every week. Five of them. Every week. And I then went to a Christian school. And I then went to Christian college. And again, that was back in the era where Christian colleges believed the Bible and all that stuff. Today, we have a whole generation of Christians who are gambling on Christianity without church. And if you're a parent, gambling that your kids will engage in Christianity without church, and that's a huge gamble. So in my lifetime, we've gone from 20 times a month, let's just call it 20 hours or 20 half hours, to one and a half for many people. And that's considered faithful church attendance. And I would suggest the one and a half in many cases is having to be, this educational standard is having to be lowered because of all the other hours that are missing. You're building off less of an educational base with children because education is cumulative. A churchgoer wrote a letter to the editor of a newspaper and complained that it made no sense to go to church every Sunday. I've gone for 30 years now, he wrote, and in that time I haven't heard something like, I have heard something like 3,000 sermons, but for the life of me I can't remember a single one of them. So I think I'm wasting my time and the pastors are wasting theirs by giving sermons at all. And this started a controversy in letters to the editor, much to the delight of the editor, went on for weeks, and then finally somebody wrote this, and this kind of settled the argument. Well, I've been married for 30 years now, and in that time, my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals. All right, so this is, you know, obviously this guy was pampered at home, and this is not saying that his wife should have had to cook all the meals, okay? Ladies, I'm not saying that, all right? This guy had that life, okay? Don't kill the messenger. I know how to cook. When my wife goes to the States, I do just fine. So my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals for me. But for the life of me, I cannot recall the entire menu for a single one of those meals. But I do know this. They all nourished me and gave me the strength needed to do my work. If my wife had not given me those meals, I would be physically dead today. So he never did learn how to do stuff on his own. Just, I do. He, he didn't. I would be physically dead today. Likewise, if I had not gone to church for nourishment, I would be spiritually dead today. It does nourish us. 
Second danger of eroding the all-in model is the entropy of related commitments. Now, I just wanted to throw a word in there that came from science so I would look smart. The law of entropy, the left unchecked disorder increases over time. Things slow down, things get messy, there's chaos. As church attendance decreases, it's dragging all of the other related commitments down with it. I mean, if I want to keep all my options open till Saturday about what I'm going to do on Sunday, I'm a lot less likely to volunteer for something on the weekend, aren't I? Because I want to wait with my family or my spouse to, to decide, uh, you know, Thursday night, Friday night, what are we doing this weekend? Well, if church isn't the automatic answer, I'm not going to commit to teaching Sunday school. I'm not going to commit to being part of a hospitality team or greeting or ushering because I want to keep my options open in case the 20 below doesn't happen. Maybe we want to go skiing. Maybe we want to do something else. Maybe we want to just keep it all open. And if I'm only going one and a half times a month, I mean, why would I ever give 10% of my income to a church? Why would I ever tithe to an organization? I'm only there one and a half times a month. That's like if I have a gym membership and I go once a month, why do I keep paying for my gym membership? We feel the same way about giving. We're, we become increasingly disconnected, so giving doesn't make sense, so we stop supporting the things that ideally change the world. Or I'll find other causes, because I'm not that connected to church. This little agency over here is a lot sexier than the church is, so I'll give to that. Or I'll just pass on generosity altogether. It's another commitment that erodes. I can't invite my friend to church to a series on marriage or family. We got a lot going on that month. You know, I don't, I don't want, I'm not even sure what weekends we're going to be there. So how could I invite a friend to church? See, commitments die together. And it's all dying, by the way. Third, I said I was going to try to be positive, didn't I? All right. A loss of stabilizing community. The church is a community. Now, if we want to talk about, well, it's not a very good one, I agree. Christians have done the worst things in my life have pretty much all been done to me by Christians. I mean, there is no comparison. There's no close second. There, there are unsaved contractors I've worked with that I'd rather be friends with than some Christians I've known. You know, I mean, I would do, there was a guy built a church, first church building I ever built with. His name was Jerry. Jerry was a complete pagan, but I would do business with him on a handshake compared to some Christian contractors I knew. Christians aren't all great. We're all kind of being processed by God. We're hopefully getting better. So I get it, what's wrong with Christians. And guess what? There's some, probably some people who feel that way about me and you too, like what we've done to them. So I get it that community's a stretch for some of us when we've been hurt, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks, by the way, because the church does a terrible job of helping people get through church pain. But the church is a community. It's meant to be that way. It's very likely that your best friends are people you knew at church, and that's why sometimes the hurt is so great when there is hurt, because there is so much vulnerability and connection in the first place. But there are meant to be complementary gifts that serve the broader church. There's also a stabilizing influence, though, in community, which I want to talk about. There was a research project done in Canada. And this was about, I can't remember who did it, but our elders looked at this. Vanessa talked to us about this. 
there was a research project about why young people stay in the church. And where you do have young people kind of coming into their, you know, they get to the gap year, they go to university, those years, and they stay with the church. The reason was basically this, that that group of people that stayed had multiple mentors and influencers. Even when they went off to university, they never felt alone, and that stabilized them in their faith. Because in community, we share struggles. We're not alone in our pain. We're not alone with our decisions. We're not alone with our beliefs. Now, social media is actually, sadly, it's a bad example, but it confirms this point. The power of a group that thinks the same thing. And if you go against it, I mean, you're just going to be, it's awful. But that is also, it's a bad example of the power of community. But if you turn that on its head, Community has very powerful stabilizing effects in our life because if we're going through a tough time and we're with a community of people, we come here on a Sunday morning, we think, man, my life really, my life's not good right now, but all these people still believe in God and they've got problems too, so I guess I'm not the only one. There is real power in that, by the way. Real power in that. In fact, I would suggest that most people who are being converted to Christianity in North America are coming to church services and being converted in church services. And one of the reasons that's been so effective over the last 40 years with the large church growth movement in the U.S. and Canada is this. People come together. There's a whole bunch of people who believe this. And so they're like, okay, I guess I can believe that. I'm not alone. There is power in that. Community basically is a place where we, we, we recognize I'm not alone, so I guess I don't want to deviate from my beliefs because this is what Christians believe. This is what Christians do. The people around me are, are like me in that sense, and we need community to stay the course. D.L. Moody talks about this, and D.L. Moody lived a long, long time ago. He was visiting a prominent Chicago citizen when the idea of church membership and involvement came up. This man said to him, I believe I can be just as good a Christian outside the church as I can be inside it. Moody didn't say anything. Instead, he moved to the fireplace, blazing against the winter outside. He removed one burning coal, and he placed it on the hearth. The two men sat together and watched the ember die out. The man said, I see. You know, coals stay hot together. You isolate one and just moments. It's very easy to transition from I don't go to church anymore to I don't really believe that anymore. Very easy to transition from I don't go to church anymore I really don't believe that anymore. And finally, the danger of this, of uh, eroding the all-in model is a new nominalism, which we're creating with untested results. Now, one of the reasons, actually, I think the church in America is doing worse than the church in Canada post-COVID is this. Now, there are greater percentages of people in the U.S. that are involved in church, greater percentages that claim faith and Christianity. We all know that. Uh, but what's happened is in the U.S., there's, I think the recovery from COVID has been worse, and here's why. The U.S. had many more people than can Canada on par uh, that were nominal Christians. You know, they had a little Christian background, baptized as a baby. There's a huge percentage of Americans that have Catholic and Lutheran backgrounds, so baptized as a baby, may or may not stay with it. 
A lot of people kind of connected to church but not really committed. Canada, there's not a lot of benefit to being a Christian. I think we'd agree, unless you really believe it, you know, because it's not viewed real positively in the culture in many parts of Canada. In the U.S., it's still cool, all right? Less cool, but cool. So that allowed a lot of nominalism. COVID wiped it out. Those people are just walking away from church. That's why Canada has, on par, actually done better, I think, post-COVID than America has. But here's the deal. We're, we're still struggling with the same stuff, though. Now we've got online church and all these choices. And I talked to one of our elders who said, he's got all kinds of friends and acquaintances who don't go to church anymore. And he's not younger than me. That's the 60-plus crowd. Just, they think they're loving Jesus and they don't need the institutional church. I get it. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to be a part of it, though. And we are creating, in my opinion, a new nominalism with untested results. The internet presence for churches has exploded during COVID, and we upped ours. Uh, my friend John Steer yesterday told me this story about John Stott and All Souls Church in England. So John Stott's a pretty famous theologian. Some of you are aware of him. Anyway, I, I believe this church in England was about 1,000 people on a weekend, which in England is like massive megachurch, okay? In Canada, that's not a massive megachurch. In England, that is massive church. And John Stott has, you know, he's worldwide known among pastors and theologians. And I believe it was during COVID, and I think he's died recently, but I believe it was during COVID that their internet presence exploded. First a few thousand, eventually I think maybe 70,000 views. And what they realized was all these people were not coming back to their little country churches in England and everyone was watching John Stott on weekend. And good for him, He's a pastor without a huge ego, which is a challenge for some of the pastors of the real mega, mega, mega churches in the world. They shut it down. They shut down their internet presence. They said, go back to your churches because they realized they were actually harming the kingdom with their Sunday morning offering of an online service. There are other churches that will no longer show an online service during the service. They're not gonna compete with the people coming together because Christian leaders are waking up and they're asking the question, what sort of good monster have we created? Shut it down and go back to your churches. Now I know some of you are watching online right now and you're thinking, man, this is for a church trying to build an online presence. He's not being very friendly to it. Here's what I would say. You know what? If there's eight inches of snow outside, and it's so sloppy, half of us are going to get in accidents on the way to church. Or if you're infirmed and you can't get out anymore, online church is great. Or if you're traveling and you were on vacation, you missed the service and we're doing a series and you want to catch up, that's great. It cannot replace public gatherings. Especially if you've got children. What are we modeling for them? How will Christianity be carried on if we get away from what churches have done for 2,000 years? Dads, just to leave you with a little extra guilt. In 1994, the Swiss, 
Now, I think we'd all agree the Swiss is not a bastion of evangelical Christianity, Switzerland, okay? About as liberal a country in Europe as you can find, and that's quite a contest in Europe, all right? In 1994, Swiss study explored how religion gets passed on from one generation to the next. In other words, what causes a child to adopt his or her parents' faith? The results pointed to one critical factor, father's involvement in practicing his faith. Listen to these statistics. If both father and mother attend church regularly, 33% of children will become regular churchgoers and 41% will attend irregularly. So 70-some percent would stay with the church. And this is in Switzerland where, again, the church is not a popular concept. If only mom attends and dad attends sporadically, 3% of children will become regular churchgoers and 59% will attend irregularly. On the other hand, if the father attends church regularly and the mother is irregular, 38% of children become regular attenders. If the father attends church regularly but the mother doesn't attend at all, interestingly, the percentage goes up. 44% will become regular attenders. I've said this before, and ladies don't hate me for it, dad is more important than mom on this issue. Dad is more important than mom on a few issues that relate to both security and children and religious devotion. And I, I realize I'm a dinosaur. I should have died out with the T-Rex. But men and women are not the same. We weren't created the same. And we all contribute differently to our children's development. I hope I can say that a few more years before I'm thrown in jail or kicked out of the country. We are different. And we contribute different things to our children's development, spiritually and socially in every way. And dad, in this one, you're the most important component. When neither parent practices their faith to nobody's surprise, 4% of children will become regular attenders, 15% will attend occasionally. In other words, without mom or dad's regular participation, 80% of children will drift away from the faith. Although the study certainly challenges fathers to participate in church involvement, it also offers some hope for faithful moms. Even when a father attends irregularly, there are some extraordinary effects. And the Swiss study didn't account for many other factors, the spiritual vitality of the church they attended, the power of a praying mom, and the influence of a church that mentors children whose fathers are less involved. But let's get back to the main point here. When it comes to church involvement, we're all starting from zero, sort of after COVID. We've had waning habits and we need a course reversal. We need a course reversal because we believe, we believe the most important things in the universe, that God came into this world in the person of Jesus. He died for our sins. He was raised again according to the scriptures on the third day. He has paid for the sins of humanity to all those who believe. We carry that message and there is nothing more important in any of our lives than that. And we need to maintain a commitment to the body of faithful believers that believe that. And we need to maintain that commitment for the sake of those who are not yet here who need the body of believers that believe that. God, we thank you for your word. And I know these are hard words. These are harsh words. But we believe that right now the church in North America, the church in Canada is not really reflecting the kinds of commitment to you that we've had historically and that probably are going to lead us to effectively 
keeping our children and grandchildren in the faith as well as reaching our neighbors and friends. And I pray that you would help us to recreate something that looks more like the New Testament where you are the center of our lives and the church is in many ways the center of our connections. We want to stay connected to the church because it's, it's the way we continue to keep that fire in our hearts. We also want to stay connected to the outside world who needs us desperately. Help us to do both faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.